This morning we talked about some of the mission work that the church here has been engaged in and and some of the things that have been accomplished this summer and really the mission focus that we have as a congregation. And I think that that's a a wonderful idea and a wonderful uh, thing to be engaged in. But what I was thinking we could do tonight is look not just at um, particularly the mission work that we are engaged in, but the idea of missions and the biblical foundation of it as a whole. Uh, What I wanted to do is to go to the Bible and ask the question, why is it that missions matters? Why is it that we should focus on other nations and nations uh, throughout the world rather than just focusing on ourselves or focusing on our, our local area? Why is that an important mission and why is that something we should prioritize? And what you could do, and, and, and it would be valid, is just go to certain commands in the New Testament and say, well, it says to do it. And so, so there you go, do it. Um, but what I was thinking we could do is, is take even, a, I guess, a broader look than that and ask even those commands— Even the commands like the Great Commission that Jesus offers, what is that coming from? What is that rooted in? What is the story of the mission of God and the story of Scripture that gives that command a worthwhile place? Why is Jesus concerned about that? Why is he saying that? Because what what you will notice, I think, is that it ties in to great biblical themes that go all the way back to creation itself. The idea of missions is about the creator God being in love with all of his creation and wanting to be reconciled to all of his creation. Every language, every people, every nation, and every tongue. And that is a story that goes all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. And we see beautiful visions of it like we read this morning in the book of Revelation. And the story in between those two things is a story of sin and a story of overcoming sin and conquering sin and death to bring about that vision of the unity of mankind under the umbrella of the love of God. And so uh, we're going to look at that idea here in the lesson this evening. And hopefully that will give us... Uh, some idea of of the story of the Bible and how the whole story is lending itself to the idea of the mission work that we as a church get to engage in. We get to engage in something that is fundamentally rooted in Scripture and in God's goal and mission for his whole world. And so it's an important thing to do and it's an exciting thing to be involved in. We could talk about creation, um, and I think that's an important thing to do. Uh, when God created the world, he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. The idea there of them filling the earth was that there were supposed to be worldwide fellowship with God uh, throughout the whole world. But we know the story, and we'll summarize it quickly. Sin caused problems, and uh, because of that, they were banished from the garden. And it seems that that mission of spreading uh, love and fellowship with God throughout the world was devastated by the sinful actions of humanity. You see Adam and Eve sin in the garden. You see Cain murder his brother. You see Lamech turn revenge into a, uh, into a, something that was, uh, you know, he was an expert in it. And he says, if you, you know, if Cain is, has sevenfold vengeance, then me seventyfold. And and that idea of violence and of hatred ended up spreading throughout the world until you get to Genesis chapter 6 and you see that every thought of mankind was only evil continually. You see that there was violence spread throughout the world. And so God, through the flood, doesn't give up on his world. 
doesn't uh, give up on his original intention of having fellowship with all of mankind, but he cleanses the world of all of that wickedness through the flood, saving a family that would bring about righteousness. And yet once the flood water subsided and that family was again given that creation commission to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, what we see happening is again sin comes into the world. And rather even than filling the earth, they end up congregating so that they specifically will not fill the earth. When you get to Genesis chapter 11, there's a, a story that you know people are familiar with, a lot of people are familiar with from early Bible classes, the Tower of Babel. Uh, it's one of the stories that we often emphasize and teach the children, and it's an important story. But notice um, the logic behind building the city and building the tower. This is Genesis chapter 11 in verse 3. It says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick and stone, uh, for they used tar, uh, for they had used uh, tar for mortar. Um, and then they said, "Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens, and let us make uh, for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." Now, when you ask about that question, why are they concerned about being scattered abroad throughout the face of the whole earth? Uh, I, I don't know if it was just like a threat God had said to them that we're not told about, that if you stay, if you, if you don't build this tower, that's going to happen. I don't think so. I, I think it might have to do with uh, that commission that was given that they were supposed to fill the earth and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And rather than being spread throughout, they decide to congregate in a city, and they do so for two reasons in this passage, so that they won't be scattered and to make for themselves a name. They were gathered in honor of their own name, specifically to not be scattered throughout the world. They had a very uh, uh, local focus rather than a worldwide focus. And because of that, they try to make themselves great rather than spreading throughout the world and trying to make the name of God great. And God sees this, and he sees the, the major problem with this. And we could spend a lot of time on the Tower of Babel. We're going to briefly uh, kind of go through it. But one of the things that God says that is so surprising to me, but it's also really noteworthy. It's something we should remember that God said. When he looked at these people who were all working together, all in unison, all speaking the same language, he says something remarkable about that. In verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. That's God saying that about humans, saying when they work together, when they are one people, when they are united, when they all speak the same language, there's no telling what they can accomplish. They can accomplish anything they set their mind to. Think about that for a minute. Is it, when I think of God, isn't he ordinarily a fan of people working together? Of unity? Of people being united and being one people and all? You, know, you kind of think about what God wants for the church. And you think about so many of the passages that we know of. Division isn't usually something God's a big fan of. He likes people working together. But what's the problem right here? When people work together, when people are united, there is almost unlimited potential. They can accomplish so much. And when you're united for the sake of disobeying God and making your own name great, boy, you can do it. Humans can make their own names great. And humans can be profoundly uh, skilled at disobeying God. 
And when God sees that, he decides to thwart that unity to mess up and to, to put a, 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 throw a wrench into what they can accomplish by confusing their languages and forcibly scattering them throughout the world. So as that happens, God puts a halt to the problem of Babylon, which is, by the way, the Tower of Babel. We call it the Tower of Babel. The Hebrew word for Babel, it's just the word Babylon. If you look at the way that word is translated, like everywhere in your Bible, it's used like over a hundred times. Every other time it's Babylon. It's just the city of Babylon. Uh, and so, and so this, this is kind of the origin story of the wickedness of the nations. And it goes back to Babylon. And it goes back to the great mighty structures that they built in Babylon. If you were to Google a ba- Babylonian ziggurat, you might get a good idea of kind of what this tower looked like. It's a tower that had a big staircase that led to the top. And there's the idea of like a temple for the dwelling of the gods on top of the tower. But, but all of that is to say you have people united together trying to make their own name great, trying to be local in their focus and not be scattered throughout the world, and God scatters them throughout the world to thwart their plans. But as they go, they bring their selfishness, their pride, their arrogance with them to where now we have a whole world just like before the flood. Now we have a whole world that's full of humanity acting in proud, arrogant, and in even violent ways. You have the nations that war with one another and, and all of these problems. And so in Genesis chapter 12, which is the very next chapter, rather than giving up on the world, God, uh, and rather than flooding the world and starting over again, God initiates a new plan to bring about reconciliation and worldwide peace. And that is through someone named Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. Which, by the way, is ironic. Because what were they trying to do with Babel? They were trying to make their own name great. Apparently, God's okay with someone having a great name. But you shouldn't be seeking to do it yourself. God is going to bestow upon him a great name. And the most important thing for Abram to do is not to try to make his own name great. He's supposed to uplift and honor the very name of God. And God will in return bless him by making his own name great. And so you have, a, you have throughout the story this, this play with the word name that, that takes place. But God promises to make his name great. And he says, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And then notice the final phrase of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's kind of like that, that initial Eden commission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It was thwarted by sin. It was the, the flood led to it. Uh, it. It was thwarted after the flood with the Tower of Babel. And God spread people throughout the world, but they still weren't receiving the blessing of God because sin was still causing them to turn against him. And so now he chooses a man, Abram, and says, through you, I'm going to bless my world. I'm going to bless all the families of the world. As you continue to read, you'll see this prob- uh, promise that is... Um, uh, reiterated a number of times, but you'll see God even use other language like, uh, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, uh, and that Abram will be a father of many nations. And, and you see these other ideas where the nations, the families, those outside of Israel are the ones who are to be blessed as well. So from the initial call of Israel, it was never intended to be only Israel that was blessed. 
Israel was called to be a nation, sure, but their purpose as a nation was ultimately to bring about the blessing and the reconciliation of God to all the nations, to bring about that Edenic blessing that God originally promised to all of mankind. And so even as God, say, frees uh, the children of Israel from slavery, what he's going to do is he's going to give them a certain vocation. He's going to give them a job in the world around them. And you see this throughout the the law of Moses. One of the purposes of Israel was to show the nations around them a better way to show how great the God of Israel was. So he, he tells them things like, you're going to be a nation of priests. And that's not the same as saying you are a nation with priests or a nation that one of your tribes will be priests. We know that that's true, that they did have the Levites and the the descendants of Aaron could be high priests and there were Levitical uh, priests that would help out with the temple services and everything. But he says you as a nation are going to be priests. And I think the idea is they as a nation are supposed to be the representatives of God to the nations around them and the nations around them could learn of God by looking to them. And then in the Ten Commandments, when God says that you are not to bear the name of the Lord in vain, uh, that is a commandment, and we've talked about this before, that we sometimes apply to the way we say the name of God uh, or say phrases like, oh my God, or things like that. Like, don't use God's name flippantly. And I think that's true if we should honor and revere God and only speak his name with, with utter reverence and respect. But I do think that there's more to that command than what you say. Because the word isn't, don't say the name of the Lord in vain. The command is not to carry or to bear the name of the Lord in vain. The word there, it's the same word that's used for the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. It's the same word that's used for the high priest. When he wears on his robes this plate, he carries the names of Israel on it. And there are these stones on it. And it's just a couple chapters later when that breastplate is being described and he's carrying the names. That's the exact same expression that's used there in the Ten Commandments for the way the children of Israel are supposed to carry the name of God. And here's what I think is happening. I think God has called them to be his people and to wear his name. They are the people called by his name. And so the way that they act has a direct bearing on the way people think about God himself, on the way people think about his name. So when the children of Israel ignore God and act rebellious and sinful— then the name of God is dragged through the mud. When the children of Israel uh, worship other gods and they treat other gods as equal to the God who rescued them from Egypt, then God is lowered to the status of all of the gods of the nations. He's just one among many now. And his name, his unique, unparalleled name, is again dragged through the mud. And that's why they're not supposed to worship other gods. That's why they're supposed to be a unique and set-apart people, because they have been given the very name of God. And they're supposed, they should not be given that name in vain, but carry it with honor and dignity and respect, so that people will see who God is by looking at them. So even that command is not just for them. It's for the nations to see who God is. The book of Isaiah, chapter 49, describes it as them being a light to the nations. The the nations should see, kind of like, it's the same language Jesus uses for us, by the way, when we're supposed to be the light of the world. It's like his followers are supposed to do what Israel was supposed to do. We're supposed to be showing the world a better way. We're supposed to be showing them the light of God through who we are and how we act. And so Israel's call wasn't just to be 
an exclusive nation that was devoted to God because God loved them and hated Gentiles. No, uh, Israel's purpose was about God's love for them and the Gentiles. By the way, the word nations and the word Gentiles in Hebrew, goyim, they're the exact same word. So whether you want to translate it as nations or Gentiles, it just depends on context. They're the exact same Hebrew word. And the same is true in Greek also. In Greek, the word nations and the word Gentiles are the exact same word. So when Jesus says, go into all the nations— well, you could say, go into all the Gentiles. Uh, and so it's, it's just the exact same word. It's translator's choice, which one you want to put there. Uh, and so all of these, these ideas about the nations and being a light to the nations, it's talking about being a light to all the Gentiles that are out there so that they could see who God is through you. And then as you continue to read the Old Testament— you see that the original problem was that sin was rampant throughout all of the nations. And you see that God's solution was through Abraham to bring about blessing to all of the nations. And then the purpose and the call of Israel was to be a light to all of the nations. And then when you read through the Old Testament, you see uh, several things. One, you see genuine hatred for the nations begin to develop in Israel, like Jonah. If you read the book of Jonah, the reason he doesn't want to go to, uh, to Nineveh, it wasn't for fear of his own life. He, he, was, he wanted to die. He said that over and over again. Throw me overboard. I'd rather die than go there. It wasn't fear of death. Uh, even after they repented, he said, God, kill me. Why? Because he would rather die than see those hated, sinful, wicked nations like Nineveh and like Assyria receive God's blessing. He, he had completely forgotten what the initial call was to be. He was sent to the nations. That should have been something he was joyous to do. Hey, this is like what the call of Abraham was. This is, this is, this is getting to the foundation of who we are as a people, to be a blessing to the nations. But no, he hated them. And by the time you get to Jesus' day, you, say that, you see that, that hatred for the nations as well. You see the, one of the big problems that the church has in the early days is the attitude of Jews towards Gentiles and Gentiles towards Jews. They don't like each other. Instead of, instead of Israel becoming a light to bring all the nations in, they became a source of, of animosity towards the nations. And so that's also something that in the pages of the New Testament you have to, to try to work through. But when you read the Old Testament, you see that even though those type of, uh, of hateful feelings are developing, you still see this grand vision that God repeatedly reveals of all of the nations becoming part of Israel one day. Uh, look with me at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, and this is a passage that's quoted in Micah chapter 4. It's, it, you can find it in two different places in your Old Testament. Uh, the same, the, like almost verbatim, the exact same words and phrases. Uh, but in Isaiah chapter 2, notice this beautiful picture of the universal reign of God as king. It, it's, it's, what, it's what I think the promise to Abraham was envisioning, like the whole world being blessed through Israel. When you look at Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. The idea there is that the mountain of the house, like the, the temple mountain, will become the greatest mountain on earth, and all of the nations will want to come find out who the God of Israel is. Verse 3, many peoples 
like the nations and the peoples, the people's outsiders, they will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, that he may judge between the nations and render decisions among many peoples. And notice this picture in verse 4. It's a beautiful one. I think the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is, is getting to the heart of this idea. He says, And they will hammer their swords, which are used for war, into plowshares, and their spears, that are used for war, into pruning hooks. They're not going to need war uh, weaponry anymore. They're going to need it for the bountiful harvest. You know? Why? Because nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's a pretty awesome picture that Isaiah is seeing there. But notice he sees the nations at peace coming under the reign of God, the God of Israel. That's, I think, what the promise to Abraham was was about. All of the nations will be blessed. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. And when you see people in that type of harmony and and unity, you're getting a picture of what, what the world could look like if... It hadn't gone awry in Eden. When they, uh, if they were fruitful and multiply and filled the earth and subdued it, and you didn't have nation lifting up uh, hand against nation and hatred and warfare, if you didn't have the sins of Babylon and you didn't have the, all of those things, you're getting the picture of what the ideal created world was intended to be. This isn't the only place you see it, too. You see this promise over and over again, this beautiful vision. We'll look at just a couple of passages. Uh, Look at Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2 in your Old Testament, uh, right there towards the very back. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. says, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. This is God speaking. I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Notice the language. The nations will join themselves to the Lord in the day that I come and dwell among you and they will become my people. By the way, I think some of this type of language When Jesus comes as God with us, and Jesus is God dwelling literally among his people, and then he is sending out uh, the the Great Commission for all of the nations to join under his reign, I think these are the types of passages that are the foundation of that way of thinking. I mean, this this is what those are all hinting towards and bringing about. And Jesus is very literally bringing about these ideas. But he says, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will be my people. And then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land um, and will again choose Jerusalem. Uh, So God is going to love his people. He will love Israel, but all of the nations will be invited to become part of Israel under the very reign of God. Uh, look with me at Daniel chapter 7. This is, this is a crucial passage for understanding the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus. It pops up over and over again. Even the language of like son of man that Jesus uses for himself is a constant reference back to these ideas in Daniel 7. But in Daniel chapter 7, you have 
the nations presented as beasts that are predators, that destroy, that kill, that devour others. They're presented as a lion and as a leopard and as a bear and as just this terrible beast. And they all come from the sea and they're terrifying and no one wants to be anywhere near them. That's what the beasts do. That's what Babylon does. That's what Rome does. That's what the Greeks and the Persians do. That's what world empires do. And they cause dread for all of their enemies. And they all come forth from the sea. But then Daniel keeps looking, and this is verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So one like a son of man rides the clouds up to God who's seated on the throne. And to the son of man, this is verse 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So you have all these like man-made kingdoms that are the beasts that are running amok on this earth, but then you have God's kingdom. He's seated on his throne. He chooses the Son of Man, and he delivers to him a kingdom along with glory and absolute dominion. And when that happens... All peoples, nations, and men of every language, peoples, nations, and languages, they're all going to gather together under the service of that one true king. This picture in Daniel 7 is, I think, the background of that glorious picture we talked about this morning from the book of Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation 7, you have this glorious image where John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, men from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, like the throne is there in Daniel 7. All the peoples and the nations and the languages and all that is there in Daniel 7. Only in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one who's given the kingdom. In Revelation, the one who's there isn't called the Son of Man. He's called the Lamb. But it's the same person. Uh, That's Jesus. And he says, And he was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And all of the peoples, nations, languages, and tongues, they were clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it seems like in that moment, even though they are from different languages, even though they are different people groups, even though they uh, have different nations, those barriers are removed as they with one voice in unison worship the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Because there is a kingdom higher than the kingdoms of this earth. And there is a kingdom that we are all striving for unity among all of the nations. To bring people under the reign of the one true God. The God who called Abraham. The God revealed in Jesus. The God who throughout the Old Testament envisioned through his love for all of creation and all of the nations. That he would bring about this plan for reconciliation. That's what the mission of the church ties into as you begin reading through the New Testament. So like even just remember Acts chapter 2 when the church first begins you have this picture of these Jews gathered together for Pentecost and there's this lengthy description 
of all of the different nations that are represented. In fact, Acts chapter 2 and verse 5 says, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's the language that's used, every nation under heaven. They're back in one city in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there's actually a list given of all of the different people, and it's a lot like a brief summary of Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is called the Table of Nations, and it describes where all the peoples were dispersed. Uh, When you get to Acts 2, it's almost like all of those people, they're back in one city. Only this time, instead of it being Babylon where they're joined, they're in Jerusalem. And you remember how the story of the Tower of Babel begins with everyone speaking in one voice, but then at the end of it, they're all speaking many languages. Everyone had one language, and then it becomes many so that there's confusion. What you have in Acts chapter 2 is everyone there who speaks different languages, then through the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues, they all begin to understand in one language. So in Acts chapter 2, the disciples begin speaking, and in verse 7, all of the crowds, men from every nation under heaven, they're astonished and amazed, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. Like, it goes through the list. But he mentions all of these places, and he's saying, through the gift of tongues, the curse of the Tower of Babel is being reversed here in Jerusalem. In the sins of Babylon that you saw that led to so much division in the world are being undone here in Jerusalem with the initiation of the very church itself and the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so then you continue to read through the New Testament and you see that bringing together Jews and Gentiles into one family is like what Paul's central mission is. Why? Well, he'll, he'll tell you. He'll even quote Genesis 12, that initial call of Abraham, that through Jesus, all the families of the earth are to be blessed. And so that's why he goes into all the different nations of the earth. That's, that's the purpose and like the logic behind his missionary efforts. It is to tie into the original creation call, to tie into the original call of Abraham, and to envision what the ultimate future day is going to be. And you can see all of that together in the church when you have people from every different nation, language, and tongue worshiping God together. That's why we do missions, because it's the central call of what the mission of God is on earth. And, and that's why it matters that we are engaged in it. And that's, that's actually what the very gospel is. Like, like we, when we think about the gospel, we might uh, be tempted to think in terms of like a plan of salvation, you know, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, something like that. And I think that is certainly a response to the gospel. Um, Jesus, uh, when he talks about uh, the gospel, he says, uh, repent and believe the gospel. But even that, that language, repentance and believe the gospel, those are things you do because of the gospel. The gospel, I believe, is the, the idea of the universal reign of God on earth, where people are forgiven and are saved. And that universal reign unites into one family people of every nation and, and, and tongue and people who had been alienated are now welcome in as sons. Like, that's central to what the very gospel is. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, will describe it better than I can. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul will talk about why he is a servant to the Gentiles. 
Why he, a Jew, cares so much about the Gentiles? In, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. It's like, I'm in prison because I keep going to the Gentiles. Why is he doing that? Why is he going to the nations? Well, because that's what the central call of the gospel is. In verse 2, he says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. So he says, God revealed a mystery to him, and he's about to tell us that mystery. And it's the, the, this mystery is why he keeps going to the Gentiles, why he's in prison, why he goes to other nations. He says in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read what I'm writing, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So God revealed a mystery to him. He wrote the mystery down, and when you read you can understand the mystery. And he wrote it down so we can read it right here. It's great news. Uh, Verse 5, and this is a mystery which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but now it has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And this is it, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister. That's the mystery. That through the gospel, Gentiles and Jews together become fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ. Like, it is that type of unity. And that's why, by the way, in the book of Galatians, Paul hears that Peter is no longer eating with Gentiles at the church in Antioch. In the church in Antioch, Peter had been eating with Gentiles, and then some people from Jerusalem came, and the Jerusalem Christians are like, what are you eating with those Gentiles for? And Peter's like, I'm not eating with them. And he only eats with the Jerusalem Jews now, to where the one table united by the gospel of Jew and Gentile has become two different tables. And when Paul sees that, he rebukes Peter to his face, not as being rude, not as, uh, you know, choosing the wrong seat or something like that. He says you are no longer walking down the, uh, the street of gospel truth. He says you, you are, he uses a, a, war, a word, uh, uh, orthopus, which is basically straight foot. <laughs> and he says your foot have turned from the gospel in the way that you're walking because you are no longer eating with Gentiles. Who you eat with is a central gospel message because we have a tendency as humans to whether it be our race or whether it be our nationality or whether it be any other barrier we can think of to want to make more than one table or to want to emphasize this table over this table or to think that, well, we should focus on us rather than focusing on them or whatever it may be. And when Paul sees that, he sees something that is directly opposed to what the very gospel is because the gospel, the mystery that was revealed to him, is that Gentiles are fellow members of the body, fellow heirs, and fellow partakers of the promise. Which is why when you read all of the baptism language in the New Testament, there are certain things that are said about baptism that talk about the unity and the breaking down of those types of barriers. I want to quickly read three different baptism texts uh, that uh, you can see some of the language and thought that goes behind baptism. Uh, the first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 13, 
where Paul says, By one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Notice, he mentions we're baptized into one body, whether, then he begins a list, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. You know what those are? Those are barriers that society has made between Jew and Gentile, or between uh, this race and that race, or between slave and free, or between people who are rich and people who are poor, people who are educated and people who aren't educated. Whatever barrier you want to talk about, in baptism, those barriers are removed and you become family with one another. Galatians chapter 3 is another one of those uh, passages that will describe that type of unity that takes place in baptism. Verses 26 through 28 says this, For you were all sons of God, you were all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. When he mentions baptism, he mentions the washing away of those types of barriers that would keep you as a separate and distinct people. And he says you are now one, whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. You become one in Christ. And you get another one of these types of passages in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 And the baptism discussion here in Colossians begins all the way back in chapter 2, and it continues into chapter 3, and this is where he's starting to get to the culmination of it. So he's been talking about baptism on, you know, throughout throughout a a whole chapter now, and he gets to this point where he says in verse uh, 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That idea of laying aside the old self is, is still part of his baptism language. And, verse 10, you have put on the new self, which again, that's baptism language, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which, verse 11, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is everything and in everything. Or Christ is all and in all. What he's saying is all of these other barriers and all of these things, they are dissolved and you become one in Christ. That's the removal of the types of divisions that were occurring in Babel. A removal that you see there when people of every nation under heaven become one language and one people there in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's what Paul is going about and doing as he's bringing this mission uh, to the world. That's why Jesus in the Great Commission, when he says to go into every nation and to preach the gospel, he says, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That idea is that there is now one true king over all, and it's Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so even the national barriers that we might think are so important, they will not keep people from submitting to the one true king of the whole world, who is Jesus. So go to every nation and make sure that they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they are taught all of the things that Jesus taught so that they could become disciples of his. Because there's one true kingdom, and it's the kingdom of heaven. And it 
the idea of all people throughout the whole globe worshiping that one God, I think goes back to that very initial Eden commission of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Like that, that's what God is doing. That's what we're doing when we're bringing the gospel to other places, when we're helping support mission works in other parts of the world. People of every nation, language, people, and tongue worshiping God together is part of that filling the earth uh, with the goodness and the glory of God. And so it's central to our call as Christians and our mission as a church and the mission of the New Testament. And so I think we ought to continue to uh, emphasize it uh, as much as we can. It's who God calls us to be. And if there's anyone here right now who would like to respond to the call of God, to have your sins washed away in baptism, to have the forgiveness of sins that's offered throughout the globe, it is now offered to you. And if you will take advantage of that, you will have salvation and eternal life and hope now for this day forward. If we can help you do that, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.